Good morning. Our scripture this morning comes from Luke 16, verses 1 through 9. He said also to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought against him, that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you are no longer, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much money do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd with the dealings in their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Will you pray with me? God, I just I pray for uh, our hearts this morning as we look at this uh, somewhat difficult passage um, and confusing passage at times for so many. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak to us through Mark and um, open the word up to us this morning. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would move um, in our church, that you would anoint uh, the words that are coming out, uh, both in uh, with Mark and, and, and song. Uh, Lord, I pray just if there's anybody here that is questioning what you're like and wondering if you really are a good God, that they would see your character this morning as both completely loving and completely just. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tracy. Well, good morning. Good morning. Ooh, there's a lot of sleepy people in here. Good morning. Let's all stand up and do 10 jumping jacks. If, no, I'm kidding. All right. We're glad you're here. Kidmo, you can head on out. If you're a guest, you have a second through fifth grader. Kidmo is a place where they have their own teaching, small groups, games, snacks, things that they do. You're welcome to walk back and see where they're headed and pick them up when we're finished in here. It's good to have you here today. Is everyone enjoying this weather? This is what we've been waiting for. Amen. Uh, now we'll see if it sticks around. Um, but... If you're in our small group, we are just, if you haven't seen our messages, we are having a last minute change um, tonight. We are going to be meeting at the College X house. We've got a sick one at home and you don't want to be around that. So uh, let me know if you have any questions. Also, if you're not in a small group, small groups are our very best opportunity to get connected, to grow in your faith and to build relationships with each other. Uh, if you are interested in, in doing that, then I want to talk to you. I'd love to get you connected. We've got openings in our, our groups that have that are co-ed, multi-generational. We also have some um, openings in our ladies group. And so if you're interested in that, please come talk to me. I'd love for you to be involved in our small groups as we move forward. Most of our groups, not all, but most are going through the sermons that we're talking about, and then they're just expanding or having discussion. I told our group a couple of weeks ago what we're doing today, this passage uh, I hate. Do you ever read those passages of Scripture and you're like, I hate this. I don't want to read this. I want to pretend this isn't in here. Y'all, y'all don't do that, do you? You probably have a higher regard for Scripture, right? That's what some of you are already thinking. You must not love Scripture. But be, there are times we read things and we think, ooh, that's just, I don't know what to do with that. 
And this is one of them. In fact, when I first put this series together, I didn't include this parable. And then over time, I decided, you know, I need to. I need to, we need to talk about this. And so I want to, I just want to let you know that, that today is a little bit different and that this perfectly illustrates the, the way that Jesus taught in parables. For one, the parables are always about what? Kingdom of God. We want to think that the parables are, you know, cute little stories that help us live our lives. Well, there are certainly applications in which we can live our lives. However, parables were not meant to just be about daily interactions. They're meant to talk about how do we live within the kingdom of God, which is what should be our primary goal and objective is that we are focused on living in the kingdom of God. So this one is very much going to demonstrate that. Also, we often think that the parables are supposed to be easy to understand and I grew up believing that. You may have grown up believing that. But Jesus did not say that the parables were supposed to be easy to understand. Instead, he said, only a few people would understand what I'm saying. And this is where he consistently said, you have to have ears to hear and eyes to see to be able to glean what I'm trying to say. In addition, that is so notable in this parable, there's a lot you can take away this morning. And so I don't even know where you're going to take away from today. I definitely have something I want to share with you. But you may take away today how to read scripture. Because very much the way that we're going to understand this parable is not by just reading the parable. We're going to have to look at surrounding scriptures. Because if when you look at a scripture and you're not sure what it says or what it means, the reality is we have to go and look in other places to understand God doesn't contradict himself. But he also doesn't give us everything in one place. So if you just read this parable, you may get frustrated like I do when I read the parable. You may take away something more internally. Maybe you're similar to someone in the audience, and there are a lot of audience members for this parable. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Maybe you're going to take away something internal. Maybe God is going to just bring something to your mind, and you're just going to shift, and your mind is going to go somewhere else, and the Holy Spirit is going to use this time prompted by this parable for you just to kind of consider what's going on in your own relationship with God. If that happens, that's okay. Now, I don't mean that you're, you know, shiny object squirrel or whatever. I'm going to go, because some of us can do that, right? Man, I'm thinking about Starbucks right now. You know, and don't think about Starbucks right now. Go grab your coffee, come back in, down it. If you need another one, go get another one. You may be shaking back there and jittery. That's okay. Stay focused on what we're doing, but I just want you to know that you may go in lots of different directions this morning, and that's okay. Now, we come to this, and we understand this parable. I'm, I'm going I'm to read it again in a minute for a reason, but I want us to go through just the basics of what is this story. And I, I, as I w- go through this, you may have already kind of shut down thinking, I don't understand this parable because we have this manager, and we have this master, and we have this Something that seems very fishy going on under the surface, and it appears that God might be encouraging this kind of fishy behavior that we don't think Jesus would ever be okay with, but yet it seems that he's okay with this. And the reason that we have that response often is because anytime we see master in a parable, we assume it's talking about God. But not always. That may not be the case here, but as we go through and just understand the parable, here's what we see. Number one, we see the manager is not good at his job, okay? Some of us can relate. Some of us don't feel like we're good at our jobs. The manager is not good at his job, but at this point, he is not dishonest. He is wasteful. 
If you've got headings in your Bibles, then one of your headings probably says this is the parable of the dishonest manager. We find that later in the story, but right now what we find is someone who is wasteful, not doing his job. Was he wasteful intentionally, or was he wasteful because he just wasn't good at his job? We don't know. We don't know. It can be either one, but he's not good at his job. A second thing we see in the story is that at this point, the manager knows he's losing his job, so what he tries to do is kind of fix his you know, his retirement here, and and he he tries to ingratiate himself with other people who might be able to help him out. So he's going to lose his livelihood. The master has come to him and said, you have been wasteful. You are no longer going to manage my affairs. And so immediately the manager is struggling to figure out, well, what am I going to do? So what does he do to ingratiate himself? He goes to all of the debtors and he adjusts their bill. Now, If you're the master and you have some account receivables and people owe you money for whatever reason, you're probably not going to look well upon someone who would take that bill and say, you know what, I'm going to slash this. We are like cutthroat prices, slashing your bill, unless you've been a part of that decision, right? I mean, I want to be a part of that decision. If they owe me the money, you're collecting it for me, and you decide, you know what? I'm just going to say they only owe you half. What? Well, I don't want half. I want the whole thing, right? If you've done the work or if you're owed the money, you want that. But this is the way the manager is going to kind of fix himself is he's going to ingratiate himself with others by saying, you know what? You owe a bunch of money. I'm going to cut your bill and then maybe... Once I'm out of a job, you'll owe me something and you'll take care of me. That seems a little fishy to me. Not something that Jesus would say is a good thing. And the reality and the reason he's doing this are really, he he responds in two ways. Number one, he's kind of (laughs) weak. He's not a good worker. And he says, oh, I can't go out and I can't earn a living by working by manual labor because I'm just not strong enough. He says, well, I can't go out and be a beggar. Because you know, I'm just too proud. I, I just, I'm not going to lower myself to the place to beg people to help me. So I'll fix this. I'll adjust their bills. They'll owe me. They'll take care of me. And I will make it. The fourth thing that we see here is at this point, this is the point that the master calls the manager dishonest because he adjusted the bill and he wasn't supposed to. But yet he does something unexpected if you read that God is the master. He commends him for his shrewdness. Now, this is where the disconnect comes, and this is why most people, when we talk about parables, do not talk about this parable. Because we go, what? Right? So, so the real value is being shrewd. Is that the message of the parable? Or being smart, being able to outsmart people before they before you lose your job, then basically he's saying, you know, you just got to do what you got to do. And I am so admiring what you've just done that that's a good thing. You know, I I can I could see why someone could go there because this is often how I parent. Do y'all ever parent like this? Kids get in trouble, and their way to get out of it, you just think is so ingenious. You can't help but just sit back and and just think that is really good. That was really good. Now, they don't do that so much anymore. 
But when they were little, you know, they would try to talk themselves out of being in trouble, and they would come up with this reason why they shouldn't be in trouble. And, you know, it's a terrible parenting moment when you're in that moment that you are simultaneously trying to be serious and trying not to laugh, right? Just go, that was so ingenious. That is so smart. That is fruit of my loins right there. That is impressive. <laughs> but you don't want to say that because you don't want to encourage the behavior, right? But it looks like Jesus is encouraging the behavior. Like, wow, that, you know, that's not good. That is not good. But, wow, that was ingenious. That was shrewd. Now, this is why I don't like this parable. Because I don't like attributing to Jesus the fact that he would do that when I as a parent would not, right? Now, I could come into a place where I need to be in submission and say, well, Jesus says this is important. I need to think this is important. But that is really not what Jesus is trying to say in this parable. And if that's not what he's saying, we can't just say that because we disagree with it. There are many places in Scripture I don't really like what Jesus says. He has not given me the liberty to disagree with him. Now, I may disagree with him. But that does not make me right. That just makes me of my own opinion. But we have to come to a parable when we read it and we don't really quite understand, or whether it's a parable or any other passage, I don't really understand what you're trying to say, Jesus. I'm not sure I even like what you're saying here. We have to come to the place of saying, well, what is the truth that Jesus is trying to convey? And if that truth is something I don't like, either I will submit to it or I will reject it. That is the way that we are going to approach all of these scriptures. So if we're going to do that in this one, we're going to have to look at some other things. But the next thing that we see in this parable beyond the fact that this is a place that the master calls the manager dishonest is the fact that then Jesus makes this, this comparison or this contrast that we don't really know where it came from. Kind of out of the blue, he just throws in this next statement. But Jesus contrasts the sons of this world, who is the manager and all the debtors, and really, if we're, I'll give you a hint, is the master too. They're the sons of this world. He contrasts them with the sons of light, who are the followers of Jesus. And he says the sons of men are much more shrewd than the sons of light making a distinction here between two groups of people that at first glance, you may just kind of read over that and go, I don't really know how that fits. I'm just going to go past that. But that is a trigger to say, wait a minute, Jesus may be telling this story differently, more of a cautionary tale than this is the way you're supposed to live your life. Now, if we're going to understand what he's saying, we've done this for most of the parables so far. There's usually a trigger that says you need to read something that came before this. We actually have to read before and after because Jesus doesn't teach in small segments like sermons. He doesn't just come up and, and, and give you the parable and then go, see ya, I'm out of here. Instead, Jesus is having ongoing conversations and just like your ongoing conversations, some are more complex than others. Sometimes it's real quick. We're just conveying information. We're just talking about something. We're just, you know, we're, you know, we're just, it's, it's quick. It's over. There's nothing complex about it. Sometimes the conversation has been going on a while, right? And if somebody walks in in the middle, they're completely lost about everything we're discussing. This is a complex conversation that Jesus is having, and he's not just having it with one group. What you're going to find is that Jesus is actually telling a parable to one group for the benefit of another who is eavesdropping. Now, how do I know that? Did I make that up? Well, we, what we have to do is we have to look back and see. This is our interpretation struggle. 
I've already mentioned this, is the master representative God? And if so, why is he commending dishonesty? Now, we know that can't be true. He would never commend dishonesty because he doesn't value dishonesty. And that is something that would disqualify us from walking with him and experiencing eternity with him if we accept that as a way of life. We read this in 1 Corinthians 6. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Jesus is not going to then contradict or Paul contradict what Jesus is saying. So if we're going to understand what is the context, which is the only way you can walk out of this parable alive and keep your faith intact. Because as I do read it, I think, why would you put this in here? Why would you put this in here? To start getting the context, we've got to jump back to the previous chapter, but not just the previous chapter, because the previous chapter is full of parables that are addressing the conversation, complex conversation that's going on for a while. We look back at Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, the previous chapter, it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. How many people have we got so far in the conversation? One, two, three, four. Two of you have passed basic kindergarten math. Very good. Very good. Four. All right. Okay. Who else is here in this story? Who else do we have with our four people here? Well, Pharisees are one of the four. Who else is listening? Who? I can't hear. Jesus is there. Who else? The disciples are there. Yeah, so we've got six groups of people right here, right? That are listening to this conversation. Now, if we follow that conversation, those six people are important because Jesus doesn't address them in our parable for today, but he does address them shortly thereafter because they are eavesdropping on a conversation that what Luke 16, 1 says, then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, now I want you to picture that you, oh, let's do this, a word picture. You guys are the Pharisees, the sinners, the tax collectors, I'll be Jesus, all right? All right, is that okay there, everybody? I'll be Jesus. Pastor Appreciation Month, I wasn't expecting that. I'll be Jesus today. We'll make this imaginary, we'll make, we'll make the djembe the disciples, all right? So I'm talking to you, and you're the tax collectors and the sinners primarily. Pharisees and the scribes are listening on. And as they are listening, they are upset with who they see. And who they see are people they don't think Jesus ought to be spending time with. And they say, you should not be spending time with these people. And so what's interesting is if you'll follow down with the rest of chapter 15, you get a range of parables that go after the Pharisees right here. This is an amazing thing. You get the parable of the lost sheep. Who would not leave their 99 to go find the one who was lost? You then get the parable of the lost coin 
who there is a woman who has lost a coin and she searches the entire house, turns it over to find that one coin because that one coin is so important to her. Then you have the parable of the prodigal, which we did just a few weeks ago, in which the son who leaves realizes everything he ever wanted was in, in his relationship with his father and he comes back. So we get a common thread that Jesus is concerned with lost people, right? He's concerned with these people, and he hits that hard with them. Then, immediately after the parable of the prodigal son, as he's talking to everybody, and I imagine everybody's kind of looking at the Pharisees going, oh, you're in trouble. He then turns to his disciples and tells them the parable of the dishonest manager. Now, let me ask you something. Maybe if you're a Pharisee or a scribe, you would get mad and walk away. Or maybe you would keep listening. I guess it depends a little bit on your personality. But while Jesus is addressing them, what we'll find later, and I'll read it in a few minutes, what we'll find later is that the Pharisees were listening to what Jesus was saying. And what we're going to find is this is and still an indictment, not just of the Pharisees, but it could be an indictment of all of us. So the audience we see right already, we have Pharisees, sinners, tax collectors, disciples, Jesus, and the scribes. I didn't throw the scribes in there. Now the tax collectors would be very representative of one of the groups he's talking about in the parable of the dishonest manager. Now a tax collector was not a wealthy person. Usually the wealth in which the tax collector was collecting for was not even a Jew. So we have a Jewish person working for a non-Jewish person taking money from all those who had land or property or any kind of asset, taking their tax and giving it to the wealthy non-Jewish person. Now, because of the nationality of, of the Jewish nation, they were hated. They were hated for one, they worked for somebody who wasn't a Jew. They were hated... Because they were taking from Jews and giving it to Rome. And these are people they would see every day. So the tax collectors were hated. Yet there was one group that hated them the most. And it would be those that had lots of, guess what? Money. Lots of money. With lots of money comes great responsibility, right? (laughs) That's not a thing, but... With lots of money comes lots of tax. Now, the Pharisees were often wealthy people. Often the landowners in the area were those who held this office. And so if you were going to be taxed, there was a group of people in the audience most upset to see a tax collector with this person claiming to be the Son of God, and that were those that were taking their money and giving it to Rome. They hated The tax collectors. Now, the tax collectors themselves generally were not wealthy. They were pretty poor themselves. So it's not like they were, you know, getting rich. We have, you know, the story of Zacchaeus where he says, I'm going to kind of give back because sometimes tax collectors had the freedom to not only collect the tax, but say, hey, I'm going to take a little extra off the top for me, which is what Zacchaeus did. But usually these are very poor people and they're just middlemen, but they're hated by everyone. So that's who's in the audience. That's who's we're, look, we're looking at. The audience shifts, and then we can't just read the parable. We've got to read what comes immediately following. I'm going to read the parable again. We're going to keep going for the next few verses. All that I've just told you, keep that in mind as we read through this. Back Luke 16, verse 1. 
He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, well, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Ooh, ooh, that's one of those not filled. What? You're going to be able to cheat your way into heaven? Is that what he's saying? Verse 10 goes on and says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? So what are those true riches? That the dishonest manager, while commended by the master, will never himself be able to have. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And then we have this very harsh verse 13 that we would all like to ignore if we could. No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So as we look at it in that context, we realize Jesus is telling a story not just about management, but about motive, about value, about what are our greatest desires, hopes, and dreams, about what's going on within our hearts, not just what are our actions doing. See, it'd be very easy in our context, in our culture, to understand this parable that if you have just really messed up your entire life, you could devise a scheme in which God would be pleased enough with how hard you worked to get into heaven. And quite honestly, many people would take that interpretation because it feels like we are in more control at that point. I can be in control of living my life, and if I just mess it up, then I can figure out a way to work my way back into heaven. And if it's good enough and genius enough and Jesus likes it enough, he'll let me in even though I have never actually followed him. That's why I hate this parable, because you can absolutely take that interpretation away from this. The problem is, is we have to ignore everything else in Scripture to take that interpretation. This is why part of your reading in Scripture cannot just be proof texting. I've got my favorite verses. I read the 23rd Psalm every single morning. I mean, that's great if you read the 23rd Psalm every morning, but if that's the only thing you ever read, that's not good. 
It's great that you read John 3.16 every morning. If that's the only thing you read, that's not good because you cannot understand Scripture in context if you have no other experience with any other Scripture. This is why I will read in a couple of different ways. I will read just in that what Scripture calls the washing of the Word. You just kind of immerse yourself in it and you don't necessarily look for anything. You're just kind of taking it in, letting it wash over you, seeing what sticks, seeing what God pulls to your attention which is one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. That washing of the word is where you just kind of read. You can just read anything. It doesn't have to be in a devotional. It doesn't have to be in a Bible study plan. You can just start somewhere and just read. And you may quite honestly read just tons of scripture before you ever get to the point where it begins to come together and you begin to say, now everything's starting to make sense. But what we like to do is proof text. Proof texting is we find a text that proves what I already think. God loves me. Well, there is truth to that. But if you only read everything about God's love for you, it's very easy to become that entitled, selfish, spoiled child that says, you know, daddy loves me. I can have anything I want. No, that is not the way the rest of scripture reads. But that's the way many of us read it. Proof texting says, I know what I want to believe. Now I find my text that proves it, and that's where I hang out. And if you do that, you will never understand the deeper mysteries of God. So part of your reading needs to be over time, this washing of the word. You're just spending time in scripture over and over again. You're just reading tons of stuff. Doesn't mean you can't pinpoint and say, you know, I really want to read James, or I really want to read the Gospels, or I really want to read Proverbs. You can totally do that. But do that in addition to the washing of the word. One of the ways I do that I've shared with you is, is one of the reading plans I do is a, through the Bible. I just, I go through the Bible in a year or however long it takes me. And then as soon as I'm done, I start over. Now, in addition to that, that's not the only reading I do. I also have, you know, specific things that I'm interested in. I want to study. Sometimes it's for a sermon. Sometimes it's just something we're dealing with as a family or I'm dealing with personally. Sometimes I just have questions and I want to go find the answer. And that's where we go in and we do specific study. In this parable, if you think, oh, I just want to read some parables today. And you read this parable and that's it. You are not ever going to get what Jesus is really trying to say. You have to look at the underlying understanding of scripture in order to interpret this. So as we look at this and we look at the understanding of he's talking about the master, he's talking about the slave or the the manager, and he's talking about the debtors. All of these are that sons of men, not the sons of light. That shrewdness that's being commended is being commended by the sons of men. What we're really looking at here is an indictment of those who are criticizing Jesus spending time with tax collectors and sinners. We're still on that same topic, same conversation, but the conversation is becoming more complex. It's not just a, hey, here's five verses, answered your question. And I find that this is primarily how God works in me. Ongoing conversations. Anybody else feel that way? I rarely have times when I pray and I ask God to answer a question that he just is like, bang, here you go. Next, next question. I'm not going to say it never happens, but rarely. Usually the way God speaks to me, and maybe you have a similar experience, is he is telling a bigger story and he's waiting to see how much of the story I'm going to take in before I finally figure out what he's trying to say. This is that lifelong following of Jesus. 
There are some stories that I'm still trying to figure out. I've been praying about for years. And I, I'll just self-disclosure where I am right now. Over the last few years, I have been chasing something and I can't even tell you what it is. There is, a, there is an uncomfortableness in my spirit that says, Jesus is trying to tell you something. You're not getting it. I've been feeling this way for years. I can't tell you what it is. I can tell you it has led me on an incredible search, which has caused me to dig into Scripture more and more and more, and to understand submission to God's will more personally, more realistically. And I'll tell you, I'm at a moment in my life where I feel Jesus is saying, you're about these things you're searching for, I'm about to reveal them. I don't mean like some new truth. I don't mean like, you, you know, well, I actually appeared in, you know, East Asia later in my life and write a book and start a denomination. I'm not going to do that. That's not what he's telling me. But it may be another two years before I understand what he's saying. Jesus speaks in complex conversations that take time for us to sometimes glean what he really wants us to see. And the reason is sometimes I'm not really ready to hear what he has to say. Sometimes I think I want to know. But I have some inward drives, inward motives, inward goals, inward desires that are not good. They celebrate me, not Jesus. And he has to break those down in me for me to understand the deeper mysteries about the kingdom. So what he has in me is a a drive, a desire I want to know. And he's leading me on this journey, which is why we call this place journey. You're all on a journey. We all are. And in this complex conversation, which he's telling in my life, he may tell me in the next year or two what I feel that I'm on the verge of, or he may tell me before I die, or I may never know. And that's okay, because I'll be with him forever. So when you read scripture, don't read scripture like I got to get it right now. Don't get Cliff's notes. Don't buy that Bible that says if you're feeling, you know, bad, read this. Now, those are fine. I don't want to say don't ever do that. But if that's the only way you read scripture, you miss the washing of the word that brings context to what Jesus is saying in your life right now. For some of you, parables can just completely, you can ignore it for today, and that is where you need to leave with today. You just need to go with, I need to be washing the word so I understand the context of the more complex discussion God's trying to have with me. And if that's where you are, feel free to check out and take you a little nap. I got some more good stuff for you, I think. But if that's where you are, you can totally ramp off from here. And this is where you need to focus on. Because I will tell you, God will show you more in your time in his word alone than he will sitting in a sermon. And the most of us in our our context, in our culture, will try to get more from a sermon than in their own personal study. And that's why we have so many people who don't know scripture. Because you'll never get it out of a sermon. My goal is not to give you everything that you need. I preach a long time, I know. Some of you are like, amen to that. <laughs> I preach a long time, I know. I give, I give you a lot every week. But my goal is not to give you everything you need. It is to pique your interest. And then I do a lot of different scriptures to tie it in just to say, hey, this is not me talking. This is where we see this over and over and over in Scripture. Context is so crucial. It's the number one reason people don't understand Scripture. They don't take context into account. 
We can easily see that in this parable because it does look like that what God is saying is, I will reward your shrewdness even if you're dishonest. And that, yet Jesus would never say that. God never said that anywhere. So you've got to get context. You've got to understand the bigger picture. Now, once we look at that and we understand that Jesus, what he's really doing here is he's calling out the Pharisees because he's talking to his disciples. And I just wonder his eyes kind of looking over here because he knows the Pharisees are leaning in. Scribes are leaning in. What's he saying? He's talking about us. What's he saying? And then we pick up in Luke 16, 14, it says this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, continuing the conversation, heard all these things. This is where we see that they're eavesdropping. Jesus is telling the parable intentionally for people he's not talking to to be addressed in this parable. Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, because now he turns his attention back. You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And that right there takes away our complete first reading of the parable. God is the master and he rewards a dishonest manager because he was shrewd. And he says clearly in that verse right there, that is not the case. You are those who justify yourselves before men, the sons of men. But God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men, the sons of men. Shrewdness, dishonesty, doing what you have to do to get by. Being able to pull something over on somebody else to benefit your needs. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were, until John, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And what Jesus is telling is a bigger story about motive, desire, passion, calling, and what it looks like to follow him that the Pharisees will never understand. Now, sure, Jesus could have laid this out in a much simpler argument, that we didn't have to kind of dig and try to figure out what's he saying here. Yes, he could have done that. But you see, the kingdom of God is much more complex than the kingdom of man. And we have to embrace the reality that we can't live in the kingdom of God with the same tools that we live in the kingdom of man. We have a lot of survival instincts, a lot of survival tools just to get by that don't work in the kingdom of God. This is also why Christians are often discredited, criticized. You know, the world will say things like, oh, you can't live life on your own. You need a crutch. Because a very simple world is trying to understand a very complex kingdom of God and they cannot understand how faith works. So they take the things they can't understand, apply it to a kingdom they have no clue about, and often reject us and reject it. It's amazing how Jesus teaches. Now, if you want to keep reading, we're not going to, but immediately following these... Uh, why are y'all laughing? Oh, we're not going to. What? Okay. If... Immediately following, if we keep reading, the very next verse is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. 
Do you remember that parable? That was another fun one, wasn't it? Some of these parables are not fun. I'll be honest. We're gonna, we've only got three more parables left, and they're going to be more fun. <laughs> uh, because they're more, I'd say fun. They're going to be more encouraging. These are kind of more warning parables. The, the, the last three, we're going to build up from there and launch from there. But um, the rich man and Lazarus was a tough parable. There's another one I didn't like. I'm not a fan of it. Because the story is that the rich man who's just living in this wonderful life. He's got everything he ever needs. He, he invites people to come in and eat at his house all the time. And yet outside of the gates is Lazarus, not the Lazarus who was raised from the dead, but some other guy named Lazarus who's been sick a long time, has sores all over his body. He sits there and begs. He says even the dogs lick his sores. And yet the rich man never, ever paid any attention to him, never invited him for a meal, never tried to, to make him well, never tried to feed him. And then in the end, the judgment came and Lazarus entered into the kingdom of God and the rich man didn't. This is the parable where the rich man then looks up to Lazarus, to, towards heaven and says, please let Lazarus just dip his finger in some water and just let a drop come down to me to quench my thirst. And God says, no, that's not how it works. We don't. That's not how it works. And he said, well, then at least let Lazarus come back and tell others that they really should believe in you. And this is where Jesus has this condemning statement where he says, listen, they would not even believe if Moses came back alive. They have all that they need to believe right now. Lazarus is not coming back. It is a terrible, terrible parable because especially if you love people that you know are not Christians. And if you don't love anybody that's not a Christian, that's not good either. That's cultural. Somehow we believe or we have, I think it's less prevalent today than it, than it has been in the past. It, it, it has been prevalent in the past that when you became a, a, a Christian or you became a part of a church, that you would immediately break all relationships with anyone that wasn't godly, like us, Right? In fact, there were all kinds of studies, Barna and others that did studies that showed that a person, once they became a Christian, were on fire and would lead tons of people to, to Christ at the moment they received Jesus. They were just so excited, but within six months, they had no relationships with anybody that wasn't a Christian. I don't think that's the case as much today as it was in the past. In fact, it's one of the reasons we started the church was, and, and, and that we don't program every minute of your lives is because we want you to have relationships with people outside the church. How else are we going to get the gospel to them? We just try and try and try to get, if we just have better programs, more engaging programs, more interesting programs, then people will come to our church and they will hear the gospel and they will be saved and it will be wonderful. But that's not the way Jesus worked. That's not the way people work. We tried this stuff too. And we found we could draw a crowd, but that doesn't mean that the crowd is interested in Jesus as much as the program, which is backwards. That's like the tail wagging the dog because we don't really want them to love the program. We want them to love Jesus. The program is the tool in which to teach them about Jesus. But yet so many people love the program. We got so good at the program. People love the program, but they didn't love Jesus. So this is something we struggle with in our culture. This is something we struggle with in, in what we do. In the rich man and the story of Lazarus, what we see is someone who at the end has to give an accounting and all of a sudden they realize they've been living in the wrong world. This is all in the same conversation. Now, you read different, if, if you have commentaries, 
Not all commentaries would agree that this is all a continuing conversation, although I can't help but see all the connections. We're talking about the same themes to the same people at the same moment. How can it not be? And the reason they don't is because it is so easy to break this up and make everything separate. We'll talk about money in one place. We'll talk about the dishonest manager. Well, no, we won't even talk about that. I would be, I'd be amazed to know how many people uh, that, that will preach the parable of the dishonest manager on a Sunday morning. I'm just not the smartest person in the room, right? That's why I do it. I'm not sure why no one else does it. But that's how we approach Scripture. I'm going to break this up because I get this part, but I don't get that parable. Let's just ignore the parable and let's focus on the other. But you can't do that. You've got to look at all of it. And it's in all of it that Jesus communicated to them. They got the message through all of this. We have to do the same. Now, this happens at our... If I want to give you an illustration of how this works, I just need to ask Deidre to come up here, but she's not. We've got a sick kid at home, so she's at home. She could come up and talk to you about many of our conversations in which I demonstrate the wrong way to do it, right? <laughs> like she's talking and then I've checked out midway. Do you ever do that? Y'all don't do that. That's not good. It, you know, marital health to, uh, tip number one, don't check out in the middle of a conversation with your spouse. It's not good. But I do. I have a little tad of that little, you know, shiny object and my attention shoots off to somewhere else, Right? But this is how we sometimes communicate with people. The ongoing conversation is going on, but I've lost interest. I've checked out. And then I check back in. Do you ever do that? Don't you hate those people? They check in after they've checked out, and you're like, did you listen to anything? I just said, well, uh, yeah. Oh, no, you didn't. It's very clear you did not. She could come up and tell you all kinds of examples where I do this. I just break up the conversation. Or, or she'll be saying something and she's totally right on and I've totally messed up. I know that's hard for you to believe. But it does happen from time to time. And yet, here is what my flesh does. She starts going down a road and she starts illuminating what I've done wrong and I don't like it. So I cut it off. And I find something to focus on. You know, she'll say one thing and I'll be like, I know you've just given 10 reasons why you're exactly right, but I found one little loophole right here. I'm going to focus on this. Y'all don't do this, do you? Right. Okay, good. Because I do. And I'll find this one little loophole. It drives her crazy. And it doesn't do anything to help our relationship. But that's how we approach Scripture. I don't like any. I don't like what you're saying. I'm going to focus on this over here. And I'll be honest. You know what this usually is? The love and grace of God. Does that deny the love and grace of God? No. It is the most beautiful thing we have in existence. But there's a lot more. There's a lot more. And the reality is, is yes, the love and grace of God is an an everlasting, enduring promise in which he has given us. But if that's all we ever think about, all we ever focus on, we may actually miss the true representation of his love and grace because we've ignored everything else. So this is another off-road for some of you. Maybe you check out here and recognize I need to expand my understanding of knowing and loving Jesus beyond just focusing on his love and grace. Because here's what happens when we do that. It's not bad to focus on his grace, but it's bad when we begin to use his grace. Because we don't want to be held accountable for our own actions. 
That's where it will end up if that's all we ever think about. We don't ever read about the rich man and Lazarus who says, listen, you ignored everybody. You ignored all the ways it looks like to care for others. That's why you didn't make it into heaven. And no, Lazarus isn't going to help you. Then I have to go and look, well, what am I doing to care for others? And it's not that my care for others is the proof that I love Jesus. And I'll get to this in a second. It is the fact that my love for Jesus prompts my care for others. Let's keep going. Oh, there's lots of tangents we could go on here. Lessons from the parable. I need to wrap this up. We need to, we're bringing this in for landing. Although, probably for some of us, we need to go on outside of here with this. Lessons from the parable. Four lessons I think we can take away. And then I, I, I've got something I want to just shift for a second and leave you with. Number one, as we read this, we can read from the parable some low-lying fruit. Jesus is coming again. We will have to give him an account. Okay, we've seen that in parable after parable after parable. That is one of the truths. Maybe the question is, are we ready when we have to give an account? Number two, you cannot weasel your way into heaven. Weasel your way into heaven can look like a lot of different things. We've tried a lot of different things to do this. Sometimes we keep a tally list. How many times I went to church? How many committees I served on? How many times I I served? You know, how many times that I did not say the word that came to mind when I got mad, I kept it to myself. We keep these tallies. You can't weasel yourself into heaven. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to destruction, or a woman, that leads to destruction. Well, let's not just make it about men. And the reality is, is that many of us live our lives this way, and it's not good. You can't weasel your way into heaven. It's about what's going on within us. The dishonest manager tried to fix his problem by coming up with a plan to get others to care for him when he is only interested in taking care of himself and nobody else. It's the only person he's interested in. He's not interested in those people he cut the bill from. He's only interested in caring for himself. A third thing, low-lying fruit we can take from this. It is our hearts that will tell the story of our faith, not our words or our actions. This is when the complex story begins to hit home for me. This is when you start to read this and you begin to understand Jesus is talking about our motives, our hearts. When he brings in money, he's not even really talking about money. Money is just the easy one to focus on. The thing that we idolize more than him. You have to fill in the blank. What do you idolize more than Jesus? We all do struggle with that. At times, that ongoing conversation with Jesus is him breaking down those idols that are become most important to us. How do we find those? Through prayer and study, through reflection and meditation and asking the question, what is most important to me? This is where we get to some other harder passages of Scripture. You cannot be my disciple unless you hate your mother, father, brother, sister. What, how, why in the world would Jesus say that? But it was hyperbole. The hyperbole was not that you actually hate them. The hyperbole was you love me more. I have to be more than your family. I have to be more than your friends. I have to be more than your kids. I have to be more than your jobs. I have to be more than your retirement plan. I have to be more than the way you pay your bills. I have to be more than your entertainment that you soak up for in hours. I, you know, Apple has released a new thing that has been the most convicting thing, and the Holy Spirit's been using Apple. I know some of you think that's impossible, but it is possible and it's called screen time 
Anybody updated and got this stupid thing on their phone called screen time? And then it just it pops up out of nowhere without you asking, wanting to tell you how much time you spent on your phone. What in the world were they thinking? It pops up. Tells me how much time I spent per day on my phone. And I go, oh, Jesus, forgive me. <laughs> what is most important to us? I think this is one of the scariest, but yet at the same time, most liberating places in Scripture. That God is looking at our hearts, not at our actions, and not at our words. It is scary because it gets, cuts right to the fact that I can put on a front that is fake, and I can fool you, but I cannot fool him. But it's also one of the great promises because it says you can just be you, warts and all, and be loved by Christ. Just be real. Just be real. You may not be the greatest person on earth. Well, guess what? There was only one of those. Be, be yourself. Do you know how, much fr- how freeing it is to just be you? And not have to put on a face to make people like you? Or to think you're a good person or a good Christian? And God says, just be you. I will see what is really you. And I love that person. And yet, because we live in the world of men rather than in the world of the kingdom of God, we focus just like the sons of men on things that the kingdom doesn't value. We've got to change the way that we view the world, ourselves, and God. Is he our great treasure? The truth is, is not only can we be deceptive to others, do you know what scares me the most? is I can deceive myself. I can convince myself of anything. I've got a perfectly good phone. But I I could do so much ministry with the new one. Do you know, a friend of mine, he, I just, it just, when they released the new iPhones, they came out with the XS That is, gosh, got to be the most condemning and honest name for a phone, the iPhone Excess, right? I was like, that is brilliant. How do you see the world that way? I I mean, but gosh, I can convince myself I need it. Just like there's a pastor going around saying, I need a $20 million jet so I can be closer to God. Well, guess what? You don't need a jet to be closer to God. You may get to God sooner by riding in a jet. But you're not going to get closer to him. God goes into the inward motives of our hearts. That is frightening and freeing. Unless you're holding on to something that you're not willing to let go of. Fourth thing, your life can be primarily focused on God. You cannot be primarily focused on God and something else. This is, we'll spend a lifetime on this one. If you're thinking, gosh, ooh, I struggle with this. Well, this is part of that ongoing sanctification within our hearts and within our lives that we are giving this over to him. This is what I want to leave you with. So I kind of debated, how do I end this? Because like I said, there are lots of things you can take away from today. But this is what I want to end with. Because this idea that we can work ourselves into heaven, it it has been uh, accepted by many. And it is uh, a lie from the pit of hell. James 2 says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He goes on to say, I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, my life with Christ is what motivates the things that I do. I don't do the things to make God happy or make me better. I do them because I'm motivated by my faith. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. Love that verse by James. We often pit James and Paul against each other on this. James is saying, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just, what I'm saying is, if you really have faith, you will have works. No, works won't save you. But if you don't have works, you don't have faith either. So, man, he just puts puts it down on us. Finally, Proverbs 4, 23 through 27. This is what I want to end with. I do believe this parable is a cautionary tale. He's telling his disciples with the intent that those who were watching were listening. And that's exactly what they were doing. And we find one of the answers to this cautionary tale in Proverbs 4, 23 through 27. Guard your heart above all else. For it determines the course of your life. Avoid all perverse talk. Stay away from corrupt speech. Look straight ahead. Fix your eyes on what lies before you. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Stay on the safe path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. Let us, as we leave this place, guard our hearts. And let our feet take us on the path that is safe, that keeps us from evil. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word and for the amazing lessons that you teach. I thank you that some of them are so complex that we have to dig to find what you were saying. I thank you for preserving our scripture so that we can read and we can continue even 2,000 years later. Father, I pray that you would open it up to us so that we would not simply regurgitate the things that we've heard, but it would be alive and real. That we would be able to see you, walk with you, and experience this life with you. I pray for those of us in this room, and we are trying so hard, just like the dishonest manager, to figure out a way to make ourselves acceptable to you. I pray that you would open our eyes to know that will never work. Pray that you would lead us to a place of constant submission and repentance so we can experience who you really are. Pray you will illuminate for us not only the safe path, but what path are we actually on right now? Are we on that safe path? And I pray that you would direct our steps and through your Holy Spirit guard our hearts. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.